On uh, Monday of this week, um, Chris and I drove down to Nashville for a couple of days away. Uh, we rented an Airbnb apartment downtown. We ate out a few times. We checked out some used record shops and bookstores and thrift stores. We saw the sights and we took in the atmosphere and the general feel of the city and we had a good time. Of course, we also walked around the honky-tonks and the Ryman. We drove over by Vanderbilt University to see um, the full-size replica of the Parthenon, which is the temple to the Greek goddess Athena, which is in ruins in Athens, but has been meticulously replicated in Nashville, Tennessee. We also checked out Cooter's Place, the Dukes of Hazard Museum, and even took in a show at the Grand Old Opry. Now, you probably know that I'm not the biggest country music fan, um, especially bro country, but I like history, and these past few years, I've been especially interested in the history of music. So I found much of our exploration of the city of Nashville to be fascinating. And so, for example, when we were at the Grand Old Opry, uh, Chris leaned over and said something to me she doesn't get to say much anymore. I think we're the youngest ones here. <laughs> Over the course of the evening, we, we saw something unfold that I've been thinking about ever since. There were eight groups, and each group um, performed three songs with some banter between each song. A couple of the groups were really fun to watch and listen to. A couple were uncomfortable as they sang about adultery and fornication. And then the Fairfield Four came out. And these four older black men filled the auditorium with the sound of just their voices as they sang a cappella, gospel songs. And these guys could sing. Do you know what they were singing about? Jesus. They had people stand if you're on the Lord's side. And all across the auditorium, people were standing. They sang about the streets of gold and how the, how the Lord had been so good to them. They sang like they really believed what they were singing about. They left to a standing ovation. And the announcer brought cheers if he asked, have you just been to church? Which was weird because the artist just before them proudly sang about how she didn't need a diamond ring and in fact didn't need a man at all. What does it actually look like to go to church? In the book of Leviticus, as we've been studying for these past several weeks, it's something called, um, sometimes it, the book is called the Holiness Code. It, it's a book, it, it, this is a book in which the, the text of be holy for I am holy, a verse that's repeated several times in the New Testament, that statement is, is first found here in the book of Leviticus. This is a book preeminently then about holiness about the parameters of holiness, about the structure of holiness, godliness, righteousness, integrity. We can even say after, after studying the first few chapters that we've looked at so far, that God cannot be approached easily in the Old Testament. 
I've been trying this week, especially after experiencing the, the uniquely kind of Southern American Christian syncretism of Nashville, with its, with its temple to the Greek god Athena on one hand, and, a, and, a, and a, a really cool celebration of gospel music on the other hand, I've been trying to imagine what it would have been like to engage in public worship in the days of Moses. In the days of the Exodus, in the days of the first or second temple through the history of the Old Testament, in those days when ritual sacrifice took place daily, several times during the course of the day, let alone the great feast days, what that worship would have looked like, what, what it would have felt like to be there and experience that, what it would have smelled like, what it would have been to us, to, to you and me, if we had, if we had walked into the, the precincts of the, of the temple, into the holy place, to watch the priests perform all of the rigors and, and structures of, of Levitical worship. One of the things I think that... Um, if we were able to walk through the camp of the Israelites, one of the things that we would see is that it is not easy to approach God in the Old Testament. There was ritual. There was sacrifice. There was the shedding of much blood. Without sacrifice, without the shedding of blood, it was impossible to come into the presence of God. God's holiness separates Him from us and only on the basis of, of these many and varied sacrifices was it possible for the people of God to come into the presence of God and to feel in any way safe as they worshiped their God. So let's read God's word here from Leviticus chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 14, Leviticus 5:14, and I'm going to read down through chapter 6, verse 7. So Leviticus chapter 5. Verse 14 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blem blemish out of the flock and valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him and with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any one of the things that the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. 
The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring it to the priest, uh, bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Let's just stop and ask the Lord to help us to understand. Lord, we are a needy people and we need uh, Christ. We, we need your spirit to help us to understand your word, your law here. That we might um, be conformed to the image of Christ. Pray that you would help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, so far in our study of this book, the book of Leviticus, we've looked at the laws regarding the burnt offering in chapter 1, the grain offering, chapter 2, the peace offering in chapter 3, and then beginning in chapter 4, the sin offering. And that goes all the way through chapter 5, verse 13. Um. Now, before we turn our attention to the role of the priests, which happens in the next section, we need to look at this final offering, the guilt offering. Now, like the sin offering, which I also said might be referred to as a, as a purification offering, um, this sacrificial offering was also to be done for atonement. But whereas the, uh, the, the sin offering was focused on the defilement of sin, the guilt offering focuses on sin as that which betrays covenant loyalty. Betrays covenant loyalty. The sin of God's covenant people was a betrayal of the covenant itself. That probably needs a little explanation. So, remember this. The covenant, a covenant has historically been the manner in which God relates to His people. And the law could be described, uh, we could almost describe it as the, as the terms of agreement between God and Israel. And so that key passage to keep in mind, I've referred to it several times, is from Exodus 19. And it says this, Now therefore, God says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. As Christians... We are also in a, in a covenant relationship with the Lord. In fact, we're under the new covenant. Jesus himself was referring to the promise of this new covenant when he said, to, to quote from Luke's gospel, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
The thing about these covenants, these promises, these agreements, is that they're, they're also communal in nature. That's why we call the Lord's Supper communion, right? It, 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 is, a, it is a renewal of our covenant vows. It's a holding fast by the people of God to the promises of God and a remembrance that Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a reminder of His covenant promises. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's not individualistic. It's communal. That's why we hold to, for example, a a covenant church membership. The Christian life is is not to be lived in isolation. It's to be lived in in assembly, in ecclesia, in, in church fellowship. We are in covenant with Him. He is our God and we are His people. But this necessarily means that we are also in relationship to one another. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 5 puts it like this. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, uh, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the, the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And if that's true, if we are members of one another, if, if Christian, when we assemble here as uh, Redemption Bible Church, as Christians, as, as those who have covenanted with one another, if that's true, then we can also break covenant fellowship with one another. And we do this, we do this every time we sin against one another. Under the Old Covenant, the Levitical Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, Under the Old Covenant, this one another fellowship was established right at the the outset with the giving of the initial terms of agreement, the the two tables of the law. In fact, these Ten Commandments are often divided into those laws which are directed at God and those laws which are directed toward other people. But we know that all of the law... Not only the Ten Commandments, but all of God's law can be summarized by these two statements. One is found in Deuteronomy 6.5, among other places. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Of course, those two summaries probably sound familiar because Jesus quoted them. So what happens when we violate those two statements? What happens when we fail to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or we fail to love our neighbor as ourself? What happens when we violate or betray the covenant of God? Well, under the old covenant, The Israelites were given laws for the offerings they were to bring in order to make an atonement for their sin. So we can divide this passage that we're looking at here today 
into these two sections. Sins against the Lord, verses 14 to 19 of chapter 5, and then chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, are sins against neighbors. Or I guess we should probably say sin toward neighbors, and I'll explain the difference in a minute. Well, let's look at this sin against the Lord. The first thing that we need to see um, as we look at this law is that all sin, all sin is first and foremost a transgression against the Lord. In fact, that's clear down in chapter 6, verse 2, which is about sinning toward another person. Listen to verses 2 and 3 there of chapter 6. It says this, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, if he's oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any and all the things that people do and sin thereby, the Lord himself is, is speaking to Moses, tell the people this, And he makes it very clear that whatever the sin is that has been committed, it has been committed against the Lord. That's why King David will rightly proclaim in his confession in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It's not that David didn't sin against other people. He clearly did. But he understood that he primarily sinned against the one who gave the law. All sin is a transgression against or transgression of God's perfect law. And once again, these these things here in Leviticus 5 and 6 They're also specific sins. This isn't just simply um, failed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or failed to love your neighbor. These violations, he says here, are a breach of faith and a betrayal of the covenant. And this includes, as we start this first section, it includes discovered sin. Discovered sin. Listen again to verses 15 and 16 of chapter 5. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth of it and give it to the priest and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. Now, we went over parts of this um, a couple of weeks ago, but we need to keep in mind that that phrase there, unintentional sin, that doesn't refer necessarily to just simple mistakes. It might, in fact, later it calls it a mistake, But it's more than just a a mistake or an oops. The phrase unintentional sin is is set over and against the high-handed sins. Those sins where you angrily shake your fist at God. Where you make eye contact with the Lord and do what He says not to do. These are the sins which when when discovered and when, when remembered... Clearly, they're quickly acknowledged and repented of. 
here in this law, the sin, this specific sin, is, is a violation either of God's sacred place, the, the tabernacle or later the temple, or any of the sacred things used in worship. Now what this violation actually is, isn't specified. Just that it has taken place. It's just called here, the ESV, the English Standard Version that I'm using, um, calls it a breach of faith. That term, I don't think it's actually strong enough. This is an act of faithless treachery. In fact, this term, the Hebrew term for breach of faith there, is the same term that is used much later to describe the sin that would cause Israel to be sent into exile. Ezekiel 39, verses 21 to 24 says this, the Lord says, And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously, it's the same word, with me, that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries. And they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions, and I hid my face from them. This is about unfaithfulness among those who are in covenant relationship with Yahweh, with the God who has delivered them. Let me give you three specific examples of this. This will help clarify. Number one, when Joshua was giving instructions for the taking of the city of Jericho. Remember when they marched around and blew the trumpets and the walls fell? When he was giving instructions for the people to take once the walls had fallen, he said this in Joshua 6, 8. He said, But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Stay away from the, the loot. Be careful what you take. The Lord has, has said that all of this is going to be destroyed. Don't go in there and try and save any of it. Here's the sin. Just a few verses later in chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith. That's that same word for breach of faith. Broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of uh, Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. The Lord had given Jericho into their hands easily, and yet Achan broke faith. He betrayed the Lord in disobedience. Second example, King Uzziah attempted to assume priestly authority in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, I'm just going to read a couple of verses, 16 to 18. It says this, King Uzziah, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful, that's the word, 
to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the priest, went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the son of Aaron, who are uh, consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. He was unfaithful. It was a breach of faith for him to violate God's law in this way and to sin in the holy things of the Lord in this way. He specifically broke this law. And then the third example comes just a couple of chapters later with King Ahaz and and he promoted idolatry. So 2 Chronicles 28, let me read a couple of verses, uh, beginning verse 22. King Ahaz, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. The same King Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking the anger uh, to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now, each of these examples are examples of an affront to God's holiness, a violation of the covenant, of his agreement with the people. They had said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And the very first commandment of the 10 is that God gave them is this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And Achan, I mean Ahaz specifically went right in and sacrifice to other gods. The problem with these sinners and these examples here, there was no repentance. But where there is repentance, the Lord lays out these gracious legal requirements here. The offender, in these verses 15 and 16, Leviticus 5, the offender is to bring a ram without blemish, which you can see here is is given a cash value as well. But notice also that the the offering includes kind of a a hefty service fee, an upcharge of 20%, one-fifth. That's because the offense has created an indebtedness, and so restitution must be made. And when it is, the priest shall make an atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. When there is a demonstration of repentance, genuine repentance, he shall be forgiven. It's not just that the sin is discovered that a guilt offering must be brought. The same is true for a potential sin. A potential sin. Verses 17 uh, to 19 says this, If anyone sins doing any one of the things that the Lord commands ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. 
and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. Now, you probably notice if you look at those two sections, um, and even if you look at this section and and the next one in chapter 6, there are some slight differences. With the first, uh, in verse 15, there's a breach of faith or an act of uh, faithless treachery. But here, the sin is committed unknowingly. The person violated God's covenant and wasn't initially aware of it. In fact, the Lord uses the term mistake to describe this. You can also see that the penalty isn't as severe here. There's no payment beyond the ram required or its equivalent. The biggest difference between these two is the heart behind the sin, the intention of the sinner. So how does this apply to us? This is sort of the big question that we have all through the book of Leviticus. How how does this apply to us? Well, Well, first of all, this law, think of the Israelites for a moment, this law reminded them of the importance of showing due respect toward their holy king by showing due respect to his holy things, his holy property. And to do so was to demonstrate covenant loyalty to the covenant king. They needed to show due respect to his temple, to his tabernacle, to the holy things. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme in 1 Corinthians. Listen to chapter 6. Verses 18 to 20, he says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you understand that? The Lord no longer dwells in a temple made with hands, but he still dwells with his people. Paul is saying that Christians are the Lord's holy property. We are the Lord's holy things. The Ephesian elders, um, Paul says to them in Acts chapter 20, that God uh, obtained us with the blood of Christ. And so, uh, to willingly, flagrantly violate God's covenant through sexual immorality, for example, is a breach of faith. It is the same sin as Achan, Uzziah, and Ahaz. Achan secretly took what was forbidden. Uzziah tried to serve God in a way that was entirely inappropriate. And Ahaz boarded up the temple and turned to other gods for help and relief. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I think you can read between some of those lines there. In all of this, however, in all of this, don't miss the grace of God. He's provided a way for the Israelites whose hearts are repentant before the Lord. He's provided a way for them to be released from the guilt of their sin. 
We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. But remember this, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see the connection there? We violate God's covenant every time we sin against one another. Jesus even said, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. We sin, and we don't even know it sometimes. We bring guilt upon ourselves, and we don't even know it, and it is a sin against God. But this is love. Not that we have loved God. We can't possibly keep that commandment on our own. We can't possibly love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength on our own. But in this is love, that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. I love that word. We don't use it for anything else. It's a removal of the guilt. It's the pay the atonement. It's a removal as far as the east is from the west from us. It's the forgiveness of sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's from the first table of the law, chapter 5, verses 14 through the end. What happens when we sin toward our neighbors? What happens when we sin toward one another? Well, let's look at this. The Lord continues his instructions and he, and he turns to those sins that are committed among the covenant people toward one another. But notice again, he calls this once again a breach of faith, a, 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 tre- a faithless treachery against the Lord. A sin against your neighbor is a sin against God. So what is this sin? If I were to summarize this, there's sort of a a list there in these verses. But if I was to summarize this, I would say it is deceit and oppression. Deceit and oppression. Let me read verses 2 and 3 again, chapter 6. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, Or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any and all the things that people do and sin thereby, stop there. Have you ever been ripped off by someone who then lied about it? That's what's in view here. A neighbor is given something for deposit or given something for safekeeping. Maybe he's simply stolen it. Maybe he found something that belonged to someone else and then he lied about it to the point of swearing falsely, even invoking God's name. Consider Mark chapter 14. Leave your finger there in Leviticus and turn over to Mark chapter 14. Verse 66. Swearing in God's name. Mark 14, 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. 
And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Along with the other disciples, Peter had been given the words of eternal life. They've been given the keys of the kingdom. And this is how he responds when confronted. Under the old covenant, under the old law, there was a procedure for his atonement, forgiveness, and restoration. So turn back to Leviticus 4. I would keep my finger there. We might turn back to that. We turn back to Leviticus or Leviticus chapter 6 and listen to verses 4 to 6. This is the procedure for restoration. Verse 4. If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and add a fifth to it. And give it to him to whom it belongs in the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. This begins with the person realizing his guilt. See it there? Realizing his guilt. This could mean that he simply came to understand that what he had done was wrong. This was Zacchaeus' attitude. Luke chapter 19, verse 8 tells us that Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded any, anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. When confronted with the grace of Jesus, he realized his guilt, and he demonstrated a genuine repentance by being willing to pay back those whom he had wronged and pay them back with interest. But this phrase realizes his guilt. It can also be translated as suffers guilt's consequences. And we know that, that nothing escapes God's gaze Psalm 101 verse 5 shows us that, that some of, what some of the consequences of guilt look like. King David speaks for the Lord when he writes this, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. So regardless of whether the sinner reaches repentance through simply coming to understand that his sin was wrong, or by being brought low by the Lord, a display of genuine contrition, of genuine repentance, was a willingness to make it right, a willingness even to pay restitution. 
And the significant detail here that is, that is unlike the previous section is that the sinner brought the offering to the Lord and then he gave the priest the extra 20% for restitution in the previous section. He brought the offering to the priest and he gave the priest the 20%, the, the one-fifth. Here, the sinner is to pay the restitution to his neighbor first. It says in verse 5, He shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. Then verse 6 says, He's to bring a ram offering to the priest. Jesus explains it like this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. The Lord takes seriously our broken covenant relationships. He takes seriously our sins toward one another. Let me finish by pointing us back. First to Zacchaeus, and then to Peter. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? I always wondered how a wee little man, I have to say that, because you're all thinking it. I always wondered how Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, who made his living defrauding the people, how could he give back four times of all that he had taken from them? Didn't, didn't everything he have come from them? I always wondered, I'm not great at math, but I always wondered that. But that's not the point. The point was that he was genuinely repentant. But not just to the point of paying back 120%. The scribes and the Pharisees, they would have agreed that that was what he needed to do. That's what the law said. No, his righteousness, his righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He was willing to pay back 400%. And so Jesus then said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was genuinely repentant, and Jesus recognized that. The math doesn't matter, at least not to me. It was about the genuine repentantness of his heart. He was willing to do whatever it took. And to Peter, who had sworn that he did not know him, who had been given the words of eternal life, Jesus said, and then he had, when he swore that he did not know him, he broke down and wept as he realized his guilt as the Lord brought him low in his guilt. John 20, verse 19, tells us this. It indicates that the next time Peter saw Jesus, he broke down and wept the last time Jesus is hauled off and crucified. The next time he sees Jesus, he's risen. John 20, verse 19 says, Jesus came in and stood among them, including Peter, and said to them, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. 
I don't think Peter felt an ounce of peace for the time, from the time he denied knowing Christ until the time he heard those words from our Savior who walked in the risen Savior and said, Peace be with you. This is the good news. On the night when he was betrayed, on the night that Peter denied him, Jesus was Peter's guilt offering. Do you get that? Jesus was Peter's guilt offering. On the night, on the night that he sinned, on the night that he betrayed him, on the night that he denied him, Jesus went to the cross to become Peter's guilt offering, and not just Peter's, all who would trust in him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the guilt offering for our sins. Let's pray together. Lord, these things can be hard to understand, but what is so clear to us, even while it is hard to get our minds around, is that it's your love for your own people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we come to the table this morning as a people who are grateful for the new covenant. We are grateful that we don't have to go through the rituals of the old. Father, most of us in this room would have been excluded merely because we're Gentiles. We would have had to convert and go through all of the rituals just to become one of your people, Lord. But Father, we are able to come to you today because of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we come to the table, Lord, to proclaim his death, the establishment of this new covenant that all of the stuff in Leviticus all of the offerings all of the sacrifices are shadows of Christ the one who is the light the light of the world and so Lord we come rejoicing we pray these things in Jesus name amen